0: Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have with us a very special guest. We have Lawrence Van Dyke of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the federal appellate court in California. Thanks for being here, Larry. Larry was appointed to the federal bench by President Donald Trump And was confirmed by the United States Senate on a party line vote, Democrats versus Republicans. And Larry joins us through his judicial writing, his opinion of the court in McDougal versus Ventura County, which was published in January of 2022. This is part two. I'm on page 26 of the Ninth Circuit. Court, the Ninth Circuit copy, uh, and we're on page 26. B, we do not decide that the orders are categorically unconstitutional. Although we determine that the orders warrant heightened scrutiny, we decline to determine whether the orders are categorically unconstitutional. A 48-day closure of all gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges throughout the county, which effectively forecloses all available means to acquire firearms and ammunition and practice with firearms at firing ranges, would seem to amount to a destruction of the Second Amendment right and therefore be categorically unconstitutional. page 27 but because the orders fail to satisfy any level of heightened scrutiny we base our decision on a traditional tiered scrutiny analysis um i i want to pause here for a second and just point out that he quoted significantly Heller there regarding the striking down of the DC requirement that firearms in the home be rendered and kept inoperable at all times, um, as an example of destroying the Second Amendment right, And I want to double remind you from last time that the tiers of scrutiny analysis in Second Amendment cases at this point does not apply. Uh, It probably should have never applied. Uh, The Supreme Court clarified that in Bruin last year, last June, not last June 23rd, 23, but June, 2020, 2022. So I guess this opinion is actually almost two years old. Sorry. C strict scrutiny applies because Jacobson does not apply. Jacobson recall was that 1905 vaccine case. Remember that where uh, Jacobson was the planet or the um, um, he was the one that was being forced to take the vaccine. I think it was a smallpox vaccine. He was fined $5 for not taking it. And the reason he gave for not taking it was uh, injury. He was concerned about injury. They never made him take it. They charged him $5, which is the equivalent of $140 in today's money according to the court here, the Ninth Circuit Court. Because Jacobson does not apply, we must determine which level of heightened scrutiny applies. As we have previously determined, a law that implicates the core of the Second Amendment right and severely burdens that right warrants strict scrutiny. That's from a prior ninth circuit case both of these requirements are met here first the orders implicated the core of the second amendment right because they foreclosed the ability to acquire arms and ammunition and maintain proficiency in the use of firearms rights which an unbank panel of this court has repeatedly acknowledged are necessary to the realization of the core right to possess a firearm for self defense <sighs> he's giving quotations to back that up, okay? If these rights are necessary to the realization of this core Second Amendment rights, then a fortiori. A fortiori, they must be, they must implicate the core of the Second Amendment right. Uh, Let me read to you footnote 19. In that case he was referring to, which is the Texera case, an en banc panel of our court determined, among other things, that the plaintiffs failed to state a claim that a county zoning ordinance prohibited firearm sales in certain areas impedes any resident of that county who wishes to purchase a firearm from doing so. In evaluating the claim, the panel repeatedly referred to the right to access firearms, ammunition, and firing ranges when reasoning that the zoning ordinance did not meaningfully impede on those rights. In emphasizing the zoning ordinance's lack of burden on the Second Amendment, the panel contrasted the Seventh Circuit's decision in Ezel versus City of Chicago, which was 2017, where Chicago's that was yeah, 2017, where Chicago's zoning regulations so severely limited were shooting ranges may locate that no publicly accessible shooting range existed in Chicago. Quote, no analogous restriction on the ability of county residents to purchase firearms can be inferred from the complaint in in this case. The panel therefore concluded that gun buyers have no right to have a gun store in a particular location at least as long as their access is not meaningfully constrained under texera's rationale this case is more like the azel case than texera the orders preventing all county residents from acquiring firearms and ammunition and maintaining the proficiency of their use at firing ranges Just as in the Azel case, the orders therefore squarely prohibited the very type of meaningful access that the Texera en banc panel warned against. If you didn't follow all that, this is me. This is not Larry. This is me. If you didn't follow all that, what that's saying is when a prior case The Ninth Circuit waded into this issue on zoning and um, keeping gun stores out of uh, popular shopping areas based in zoning, said, ah, that's not a big deal. That doesn't burden the Second Amendment right. And they said too much because what they said was because it doesn't uh, burden the Second Amendment right because there are access to other stores that are open in less popular areas you know like uh well kind of industrial areas or areas that would have like adult type of stuff um you know sleazy stuff like in monterey for example if you know monterey probably don't but fremont street north fremont is that kind of area that's where uh, Hunter supply was before they closed down right across from grandma's kitchen. If you know Mo- Monterey, North Monterey, uh, there's like this pornography thing that you pass. It's been there for 30 years. I think, I mean, you can't miss it from the outside. It looks the same. I can't believe it's there's something like that there still, but there's a big five over there uh, that sells guns. I think it's still there. And it's kind of like the dodgy end of Monterey. Uh, I like Grandma's Kitchen, though. By just FYI, and there's a pretty good motel there called uh, Pacific Inn. I think it's called. It's pretty good. There's, you know, uh, and I would, I since this is the Republican Professor podcast, I would be remiss not to mention that Fremont is named after a Republican senator from California who was the first Republican presidential nominee for the Republican Party in 1860. Sorry, 1856. Republican Party was founded in 1854. Uh, He lost, unfortunately, but um, a man named Abraham Lincoln won four years later. Back to Lawrence Van Dyke. I'm on page 29. I don't know what page you're on, but I'm on page 21. We just read footnote 19 I think it was yeah okay so where are we at all right bottom of 28 oh wait sorry I'm on I'm on 28 sorry second the orders mandated closure of all gun shops and firing ranges throughout the county severely burdens that right by foreclosing altogether county residents' ability to acquire firearms or ammunition or maintain proficiency in their use at firing ranges. As noted above, under California's extensive firearms regulations, the orders prohibited county residents from the only lawful Means of acquiring firearms and ammunition, and then prohibited those residents from leaving their homes to acquire those items elsewhere. Now, let me just pause here. Back in the day, we didn't have this issue, right? Even if you had these orders, the gun regulation scheme taken as a whole in California recently is crazy. Um, all purchases must be done through a dealer, a federally licensed dealer and a state licensed dealer. And oftentimes there's three levels of regulation, federal, state, and local. And it used to be that in an emergency If you needed guns or ammunition, you could just borrow something from your uncle or your cousin or your neighbor. That's how it used to be. Uh, You could buy it used. Like I said, when I was growing up, and I'm not that old, when I was growing up in Colorado, you used to be able to Look in the newspaper and look in an ad, and and call a guy up that's selling the colt python for five hundred dollars. And um, okay, you live in Wheat Ridge. Okay, I'll meet you in Lakewood. Let's meet in the Villa Italia parking lot. I'll I'll give you the cash. You give me the gun, or you know something like that. It's not a big deal. Just like selling a bicycle, it's a it's property. It doesn't have any magical powers. Uh, You know, I suppose you could run somebody over with a bike. Um, But I mean, cars are sold like that. You don't need to go through a dealer. Um, You know, I, it would be very odd for me to have to go through a dealer to sell you a used car. Another. uh, Cars are dangerous but that's how firearms used to be at like knives. If I was going to sell you a knife, I don't have to go through a dealer. I, and that's a deadly weapon. It's also a useful tool in an emergency. And so we have this issue here. I I love how he put it up. I'm going to read that part again on page 28 as noted above. Under California's extensive firearms regulations, which are burdensome too much already, the orders prohibited county residents from the only lawful means of acquiring firearms and ammunition, and then prohibited those residences from leaving residents from leaving their homes to acquire items elsewhere. So you foreclose all the common sense, historically valid ways of acquiring firearms and ammunition, and then you do something as radical as tell people to stay home and close the gun shops. It's amazing he has to he has to spell this out. This court has already observed that and quote, overall ban on gun sales would be untenable under Heller because a total prohibition would severely limit the ability of citizens to acquire firearms, page 29 at the top. As Judge Tallman noted in Texera, quote, all would agree that a complete ban on the sale of firearms and ammunition would be unconstitutional. Ooh, That's on banc, too. That's Talman's concurrence and dissenting in part. Consistent with this court's prior hypothetical discussion of the very type of complete ban at issue here, strict scrutiny applies. In arguing against the application of strict scrutiny, appellees, Primarily rely on Sylvester, and it's holding that California's 10 day waiting period between purchase and possession of a firearm warranted intermediate scrutiny. (laughs) This is me. I'm so glad Scrutiny Land has been closed down. I'm so glad. And uh, that's a reference to Randy Barnett's famous law review article called Scrutiny Land. (laughs) but it's important. We're going to go through this because it's important for posterity's sake to see, to document the types of arguments that were being used. Some people would say the excuses for violating the second amendment, but the arguments that they were using, let's you, you have to remember what they tried to do. And how they tried to do it. You know. And and I think it's probably good for you guys. To to remember this. Because there's a lot of people. That. um, Are on the Republican side. That. uh, Seem to lose memory. They lose brain cells. They don't realize how bad it was. They start talking about the uni party. Or whatever. It's like. Now, that's, this is not a uni party here. This is a party line split on a radical, fundamental difference in understanding your constitutional rights. And if you can't see that, you have your eyes closed, your hands over your ears, and you're going la, 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 la. And not on my watch All I'm doing is reading it and I'm inviting you to read it too. And I'm also inviting you to not forget it because it really happened. It's not fake. It's real. Just because you hate the word Republican because you can't stand certain Republicans, don't let that eat your brain cells out. I'm going back, page 29. In arguing against the application of strict scrutiny, appellees rely primarily on Sylvester and its holding that California's 10-day waiting period between purchase and possession of a firearm warranted intermediate scrutiny. In determining the applicable level of scrutiny, the Sylvester panel, that's the Ninth Circuit panel, the district court struck down the 10-day waiting period. Democrat judge, I mentioned him last time. We're going to do an episode on that. Stay tuned. The Sylvester panel reasoned that the contested regulation simply requires the plaintiffs to wait. The incremental... portion of the waiting period. (laughs) The waiting period also does not prevent any individual from owning a firearm. Given the very small effect of the waiting period on the plaintiffs who had already passed the background check within the 10 days and the fact that there is nothing new in having to wait for the delivery of a weapon, the Sylvester panel determined that the challenged regulation did not place a substantial burden on the Second Amendment right and therefore warranted intermediate scrutiny. But Sylvester is inapplicable here for at least three reasons. First, Sylvester concerned no more than a 10-day waiting period. Oh my gosh, this is me. I have to tell you, This 10-day waiting period is a big pain in the frickin' butt. During this lockdown thing, because I'm an academic interested in the Second Amendment constitutional law, my PhD is in constitutional law, I did an experiment where I bought... I went in and I I wanted to subject myself to the 10 day waiting period during this lockdown thing, just to see what happened in the early stages. And I really wanted to see exactly what we were dealing with here. And I'm telling you it's a pain, it's a pain on everybody because there's a 10 day thing for each firearm, each firearm, even if you already have firearms, it's like, well, what do you, what do I have to wait for if I already have firearms? It, and you know I have firearms. You know, you want me to cool off? Well, that, that makes no sense. For each one, one time I was at a gun store, and I I had come to meet somebody to purchase a curio and relic, which is um, it's a it's a firearm that's fifty years old or more. And it was a farmer guy that carried it on his hip back when, you know, John Steinbeck was writing Grapes of Wrath. And, and, um, and actually it was in that country. It was in farm country, California. And uh, it was, it was a really cool little pistol. And while I was there, a newer model of that same pistol was available for sale used And I had just purchased, I just started the 10 day on the farmer gun and I I saw this other one and I I negotiated and I was like, yeah, I'll pick that one up too. That way when I come back for the 10 day, I can pick up both of them up at the same time. And I had to do the, a different 10 day thing for that one with a different minute and second and a new fee. It was just totally ridiculous. It's just a way for them to get money, the government. And that's a lot of people say that as the end of the conversation, as if, you know, that makes it okay. It doesn't make it okay. That's a reason to get rid of it. Okay, here we go. (sighs) But Sylvester is inapplicable here for at least three reasons. First, Sylvester concerned no more than a 10 day waiting period, nearly five times shorter than the order's 48 day effective ban on firearm and ammunition sales at issue here. And for county residents who had not yet, page 30, purchased a firearm before the orders took effect, the 48 day ban here was actually exacerbated by the 10 day waiting period itself. Resulting in a total ban of A-58 days. (laughs) Um, That's a little bit awkward, A-58 days. I think he means 58 days. Essentially, two months. Moreover, the delay at issue in Sylvester was finite. The plaintiffs only challenged the incremental period between the passing of a background check and the possessing and possessing the purchased firearm, which only amounted to no more than 10 days. But here, each order promised that it would remain in effect until a certain date, which the county extended, or until it is extended, rescinded, superseded, or amended in writing. In other words, the ban on protected Second Amendment activities would continue until the government said it didn't. (laughs) Let me pause right here. Democrats were totally fine with this. Republicans were not. That's a fact. That's a documented fact right here. Everybody on this panel was appointed by a Republican president and confirmed by Republican Senate. Oh, boy. My goodness. My goodness. In other words, the ban on protected Second Amendment activities would continue until the government said it didn't. The 10-day waiting period at issue in Sylvester was therefore much less restrictive than the uncertain but eventual 48-day ban at issue here. And I'm going to say something here. The 10-day waiting period in California prepared California for this. Because look at they're they're just they're just like well you already have ten days uh, what's another two months you know I mean what's a big deal once you get the camel's nose under the tent of the principle is the government says that we can delay it and and charge you money and and basically jerk you around and tell you what you can and you can't do which otherwise should be lawful because it's innocent conduct. Two non-criminal parties coming together, agreeing on a price. One is supplying the firearm. The other one is purchasing it. That's lo- law. That is, under the natural law, that's perfectly fine. That's, there's, nothing in, there's nothing criminal about that. That's innocent conduct. You shouldn't criminalize any aspect of that. Criminal law should be reserved for the things that are criminal. What a concept. Page 30. Second, the appellants in Sylvester already possessed at least one firearm that they could use for self defense. They were seeking to avoid the 10 day waiting period when purchasing subsequent firearms. But the orders at issue here prevented county residents who owned no firearm at all before March 20th from obtaining any firearm whatsoever for effectively two months. Right in the middle of a global crisis. Denying the ability to acquire a firearm and ammunition at all is fundamentally different from waiting a short time, and I would say 10 days is not a short time, but waiting a short time to receive an additional firearm. There is a very real difference between a short defined waiting period to purchase an additional firearm versus a two month ban on purchasing any firearm ammunition or otherwise exercising your Second Amendment rights. Um, Okay, we're on page 31. Let me add here that, um, well, do I really want to say this? I'm going to add something the the 10 day waiting period was actually abused by the government during this time. I saw people that came back at 10 days. You get a piece of paper, your receipt, and it says you can come back and pick up the firearm at this time in this state. But uh, under ordinary times, that's true. But during this shutdown period in March and April and May, the firearms were not available to be delivered because the government was holding up the approval. And what the government was saying was, we have people out sick or people are too afraid to come into work or or social distancing or this or that, I don't know. Basically a bunch of excuses. And, And we're backlogged because there is such a demand, shocker, because of fear or concern about helps you know providing for your own safety, right. And there was not enough personnel to do the background checks within 10 days. And so the government was claiming that there's um, an exception in emergencies, they can take up to 30 days. And for some people, there were extended weeks of waiting beyond 10 days. Sometimes it was two weeks beyond 10 days. Uh, I I don't think that ever happened to me. I did purchase a couple of different guns during that time in different counties because I wanted to see who was. I did one in in San Diego County, that gunfighter tactical. Hmm. I actually did one at a pawn store there too, a little bit later um, after the shutdowns. And then I also did one in LA County. I did one in Riverside County and I did one in Orange County, I think. I can't remember about the Orange County, but, but I wasn't worried about Orange County. I was worried about some of the other counties like Ventura. I might've done one in Ventura. I can't remember. Um, you know, I can't, I can't recall, but I ran an experiment and, uh, I, you know, when you're waiting in line and and watching people and talking to people, um, you hear that, that they are getting turned away because their firearm is not ready. It's not that it's not ready from the gun, the dealer, the, the gun store, It's that the government has it on hold still. And so people were originally saying that's illegal, but it turns out there was something in the statute or the regulations that allowed the DOJ to basically jerk people around like that. So the 10-day waiting period was effectively three or four-week waiting period, even for those people that had already bought something at that time. And then they were saying... It's because people weren't coming into work for the government. And so they didn't, they couldn't do the background check. See, that's what I mean. It's a, it's a disaster. And this is for people just transferring used firearms, which is what I was doing. I was, I was buying used. I was just making arrangements with people over there in in Riverside or over here in, you know, Orange County or or in LA County. and, And, you know, these were cash deals, but we have to go through the gun shop and we had to make appointments. And, you know, it was just, it was, just, it was, it was uh, what could possibly go wrong? Whatever was possibly to go wrong, it went wrong. Page 31. Third, Sylvester's rationale turned on the government's claimed interest in a quote unquote cooling off period, oh brother, that is a bunch of crap, which is not at issue here. Here, the orders were the county's response in a temporary time of crisis. Appellees urge that the temporary nature somehow diminishes the burden on the Second Amendment. (laughs) But both this court and the Supreme Court have repeatedly held that the loss of First Amendment freedoms, even for minimal periods of time, unquestionably constitutes irreparable injury. Because First Amendment principles guide the analysis of the burden severity in the Second Amendment context, there is no reason that the loss of Second Amendment freedoms, even for minimal periods of time, would not likewise constitute irreparable injury. It's interesting, uh, this is me, that some of these objections to, for example, Ten Commandments on government property, what's the injury in that case? Uh, The injury would be having to look at the Ten Commandments and be offended. And, and the irreparable harm that would happen, even if it was like for two seconds. I mean, imagine having the temporary thing as an argument there where you say, oh, it's just temporary. It's just for 10 days. Or, you know, the Christmas tree with Jesus, um, you know, nativity scenes everywhere, uh, signs saying, welcome, Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, who saved the world from sins, you know, with Bible verses on government property. It's only for 10 days. I mean, you know, it's temporary. Uh, Well, I mean, the court has held, like, in the separation of church and state cases, the so-called separation of church and state cases, the the Establishment Clause cases, that um, you have standing in in an Establishment Clause case within one second of being offended because it's quote irreparable injury. So I like his his argument here, even though the the levels of scrutiny are out. I, I like how he's arguing against the Democrats. <laughs> this is especially true in the Second Amendment context where the need for armed protection and self-defense can arise at a moment's notice and without warning. People don't plan to be robbed in their homes in the dead of night or to be assaulted while walking through city streets. It is in these unexpected and sudden moments of attack that the Second Amendment's rights to keep and bear arms becomes most acute, As Heller noted, the second amendment is designed to preserve and foster the right of self-preservation which permits citizens to repel force by force when the intervention of society in his behalf may be too late to prevent an injury. Page 32, quoting Blackstone's commentaries. The acute need for Second Amendment rights during temporary crises was well understood by our founders. Modern society agrees as firearms and ammunition sales have soared during the recent pandemic. But if the government suspends these rights during times of crises, the Second Amendment itself becomes meaningless when it is needed most, especially to the victims of attacks. And I'm going to take a look at the footnotes here and see if I'm going to read them. The orders imposed a far greater burden than the 10-day delay at issue in Sylvester. Their effective ban on the acquisition of firearms and ammunitions and closure of all firing ranges where county residents can safely maintain their proficiency in firearms severely burdens the core of the Second Amendment right. Strict scrutiny applies. D, that's D as in boy. Just kidding. That's B as in dog. The orders fail under strict scrutiny. The orders cannot survive strict scrutiny. Under that standard, the regulation is valid only if it is the least restrictive means available to to further a compelling government interest. The orders attempt to stem the spread of COVID-19, which is unquestionably a compelling interest. But the recent Supreme Court COVID cases compel the conclusion that the orders are not the least restrictive means to further this compelling interest. The complete closure of all gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges is far more restrictive than any covid related regulations that have been previous that have previously become before the supreme court as those cases only concerned regulations limiting the capacity at activities that implicated fundamental rights not an outright ban of those activities altogether these are the church cases There are also many other less restrictive rules that could be adopted to minimize risk of allowing gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges to remain open. Among other things, the county could have opened gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges on an appointment-only basis, just like it eventually did for people who purchased a firearm before the orders took effect. the order's discriminatory impact on gun and ammunition shops also emphasize that they were not the least restrictive means available to further a compelling government interest. Just like in Roman Catholic diocese, which is a case that he's referring to, The orders allowed essential businesses like bicycle repair shops and hardware stores to remain open, but forced venues that provide access to core fundamental liberties, in this case, Second Amendment rights, to close. Okay. In this somewhat unique scenario where governments are grappling with a global pandemic, the risk of gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges remaining open have nothing to do with the dangers typically associated with firearms. Instead, just as in recent Supreme Court COVID cases involving religious liberty, all activities open to the public in the county essentially pose the same risk of furthering the spread of COVID by way of facilitating continued public interaction. And there is nothing in the record suggesting that gun shops, ammunition shops, or firing ranges posed a higher risk of spreading COVID than, say, bicycle shops or hardware stores. Page 35. The government's designation of, quote, essential, unquote, businesses and activities reflects a government-imposed devaluation of Second Amendment conduct in relation to various other non-constitutionally protected activities during times of crises, irrespective of any of the unique dangers presented by firearms, ammunition, or firing ranges." Such devaluation directly undermines the strong protections the Constitution was designed to protect, even through the various crises of human affairs, quoting McCulloch versus Maryland. Interesting choice. The order's discriminatory denigration of fundamental liberties reveals that they are not the least restrictive means available, further demonstrating their inability to survive strict scrutiny. Ultimately, the issue boils down to the county's designation of essential versus, quote, non-essential, unquote, businesses and activities. While courts should afford some measure of deference to local policy determinations, the enshrinement of constitutional rights necessarily takes certain policy choices off the table. When a government completely bans all acquisition of firearms and ammunition by closing gun shops and ammunition shops and firing ranges, and, you know, remember, this is me, previously saying that's the only way you can get these guns, that you can't get them from your neighbor or your uncle. It's one of those off-limits policy choices squarely contemplated by Heller. The orders cannot satisfy strict scrutiny. E. That's E is in Ernie. <clears throat> the orders also fail intermediate scrutiny. Even if strict scrutiny did not apply, the orders would fail to satisfy intermediate scrutiny. To satisfy intermediate scrutiny, the government's statutory objective must be significant, substantial, or important. And there must be a reasonable fit between the challenged law and the objective. In considering whether the challenge law withstands intermediate scrutiny, we must first define the governmental interest served by the challenge law and determine whether it is substantial. Here, as noted above, the order stated intent was to ensure the maximum number of persons stay in their places of residence to the maximum extent feasible while enabling essential services to continue to slow the spread of COVID-19 to the maximum extent possible. The overall intent of of slowing the spread of COVID-19 is a substantial government interest. So the orders satisfy the first prong of intermediate scrutiny. But appellants have failed to show that the orders reasonably fit the challenged objective this circuit has sometimes loosely applied the reasonable fit prong and only required that the challenged regulation promote a substantial government interest that would be achieved less effectively absent the regulation. Still, a majority of judges in, recent, in a recent unbank panel also reaffirmed that a reasonable fit in Second Amendment context is not, quote, less exacting than our application of the standard in other kinds of cases, unquote. That's quoting Duncan versus Bonta on Bonk 2021. My comment, yeah, right. Regardless, there are several related principles at play here that nonetheless reveal that the government has failed to meet even the more lenient version of the fit requirement that we have sometimes applied. Let me just make this comment. This reasonable fit language that's supposedly the second prong of intermediate scrutiny, which does not apply here because of Bruin, okay? But this is pre-Bruin. Basically, what Lawrence von Dyke is saying here, the Republicans are saying, is this reasonable fit thing is there's a lot of discretion on the basis of the judge. They can apply that pretty hard if they don't like the policy and they want to strike it down. Or if they like the policy because they're Democrats and they don't like the Second Amendment. They can apply that reasonable fit thing pretty loosely so that the government wins. And so it's the judge's call to make the reasonable fit language fit whatever preconceived notion they have already. And it basically doesn't do anything except express the bias of the Democrat against the Second Amendment upholding while pretending to have a neutral procedure and this is this is the result it's really just vague language that is uh, wrapped around and distorted around a government regulation that in fact is onerous and unreasonable and irrational Um, but winky winky, it, there's a reasonable fit there in somebody's mind, possibly. And so therefore the government wins and the individual loses. Okay. That's what, that's what Van Dyke is saying here. He's saying, no, we're not going to do that. Reasonable fit has to mean it's reasonable. It really is reasonable not reasonable in somebody's possible mind somewhere out there, but it has to be reasonable. Okay. The relevant principles can be grouped into two main categories. First, the government must affirmatively establish a reasonable fit we require. Page 37. This burden is not satisfied by mere speculation or conjecture. He's quoting prior cases. So, you know, he's quoting quoting when the Ninth Circuit wanted a a strict, reasonable uh, fit because they didn't like the policy and they wanted to strike it down. He's he's using those examples to say, that's what we're doing here. Um, And that's what you should do all the time, not just Sometimes, but sometimes the reasonable fit, basically, it's like a rubber band. You just stretch it, you know, uh, can we get this around this government policy? Yeah. Oh, look, reasonable fit. The rubber band is actually breaking, but, you know, you turn your attention away before that happens. So no one notices. And you're a judge and you can do that. You know, can't be fired. So. okay. So. This burden is not satisfied by mere speculation or conjecture, but by substantial evidence that the challenge restrictions will alleviate the harm. Though this court has not yet addressed the requisite threshold for, quote, substantial evidence, unquote, it has, when applying intermediate scrutiny, repeatedly it relied on at least some evidence <laughs> or explanation from the government that purportedly relates to and supports the restriction of Second Amendment rights in particular. Second, when applying intermediate scrutiny, courts must consider, quote, less burdensome alternatives and evaluate exemptions and inconsistencies that undercut the reasonableness of the purported fit. Page 38. Applying these principles, the county has failed to meet its burden here. Appellees omit any evidence or argumentation suggesting that the closure of gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges stems the spread of COVID any more than closure of bike shops, hardware stores, and golfing ranges. I mean, that is worth repeating. They have not provided any evidence or any explanation of what's on the essential list and and what's not. Remember, go back to the first episode on this topic last time, where he says no explanation was given at all by the county, on why they included certain activities on the essential list versus other activities. And, you know, I mean, I'll just add to this, like I said last time, essential for what? Essential for what? You know? essential for making a living? It's a very different answer to that question. If the business is essential for making a living for the owners and the operators, well, then all of those businesses that were shut down that fit that description are essential. Since when is it not essential to make a living whoever came up with that people are idiots it's these government bureaucrats and the democrats that give them a pass we're getting it on the record here people i don't want you to forget don't forget learn the right lessons don't forget People have such low attention spans. Don't forget. Remember. Remember. Applying these principles, the county has failed to meet its burden. Appellees omit any evidence or argumentation suggesting that the closure of gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges stems the spread of COVID any more than the closure of bike shops, hardware stores, and golfing ranges. Instead, Appelle's one-sentence justification on appeal of the order's reasonable fit is that social isolation is considered useful as a tool to control the spread of pandemic viral infections. But this carte blanche rationale that has nothing to do with the actual fundamental right at issue is riddled with exemptions and inconsistencies. If social isolation is the paramount concern, why allow bicycle shops, hardware stores, and golfing ranges to remain open? As noted above, it ultimately boils down to the government's designation of, quote, essential, unquote, and, quote, unessential, unquote, businesses. But nowhere has the government here explained why gun stores, ammunition stores, and firing ranges are, quote, non-essential, unquote, businesses, while bicycle shops, hardware stores, and golfing ranges are, quote, essential, unquote. Not only did appellees fail to provide any evidence or explanation suggesting that gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges posed a greater risk of spreading COVID-19 than other businesses and activities deemed, quote, essential, unquote. But they also failed to provide any evidence that they considered less restrictive alternatives for the general public. It's not as if alternatives were unavailable, the county eventually utilized one such alternative for those who had purchased firearms before March 20 by allowing receipt of those pre-purchased firearms on an appointment-only basis. It declined to extend this option to those who had not yet purchased a firearm by March 20. However, without any explanation, indeed, the only evidence in the record that specifically pertains to actual Second Amendment rights at issue directly undercuts the reasonableness of the fit. CISA, the federal agency, has specifically identified, quote, workers supporting the operation of firearm or ammunition retailers and shooting ranges as, quote, essential, critical, Infrastructure workers, unquote. If the government actually has any burden at all, which our court has repeatedly said that it does, even under intermediate scrutiny, then at a minimum, it means that the government must provide some explanation that pertains to the specific risks associated with the fundamental right at issue. I just add here, the Democrats don't think they owe you an explanation for violating your rights. The Republicans do. Right here. It's right here. Page 39, it did not do so here and therefore failed to meet any burden in showing a reasonable fit. Instead, it summarily devalued a fundamental right by deeming businesses essential to the exercise of that right as quote, non-essential, unquote, without any proffered rationale whatsoever. This cannot survive any type of heightened scrutiny where the government bears some burden. Conclusion, the district court erred in determining that Jacobson applied to the appellant's Second Amendment claim and in the alternative that intermediate scrutiny applied. It also erred in determining that the orders survived even intermediate scrutiny. We therefore reverse the district court's order, granting appellee's motion to dismiss and remand for further proceedings. Weinfeld concurs, and we're going to get into his concurrence next time. And there's somebody else that concurs, and that's Van Dyke himself. And just to whet your appetite about next time, <laughs> the very last sentence of this page 60 is you're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for joining me on the Republican Professor podcast. I'm coming to you from not normally, uh, I'm not I'm normally in California, but I'm coming to you today from Tennessee.